In this episode of Balancing the Christian Life, we'll talk about being the right things. Welcome to Balancing the Christian Life. I'm Kenny Embry. We'll figure out how to be better Christians and better people. Let's go. So, Dr. Embry, what can make this paper great? I'm talking to a student in one of my classes. We'll call her Sharon, which is not a real name, but this kind of student is very real. I mean, I'd love to get an even higher grade next time. I'm looking at the paper. She's got a 98. What she doesn't know is she has the highest grade in class. Her paper had a few careless errors, which would be easy enough to fix. Well, Sharon, this is already extremely good. Yes, but what would make it better? Sharon, there's not a lot to make better. Fix the few mistakes and you'll be fine. But next time I want a hundred. What should I do to get a hundred? Sharon will call me about half a dozen more times. In some ways, I appreciate students like Sharon. They're aiming for perfection. They want the satisfaction of writing the flawless sentence arranged in flawless paragraphs with flawless structure and flawless reasoning. She's chasing a number, which means she's perfect. But there's a part of me which wants to take Sharon's anxiety and give most of it to Susan. Susan is hard to reach. She never reaches out for help, but her writing is bad. She misses deadlines, and when I ask her how things are going, she gives me some pretty obvious excuses. Susan seems checked out. But when I talk to her, she tells me how important it is to be getting her degree. She tells me this is a lifelong goal. She tells me how much she appreciates my understanding, and she'll get around to writing the next paper as soon as she can. In college, people like Sharon rarely need help, but constantly seek it out. And people like Susan can't see how desperately they do need the help. Sharon thinks she's underperforming, while Susan thinks she's doing at least okay. If I asked Sharon, I think she would recognize she's a driven student. But if I asked her if she's a good student... I feel pretty certain she'd say she's trying hard. If I asked Susan if she was a good student, I think she'd say yes. As the guy who has to grade both of these students, I'm often struck by how often they are blinded to how good they really are either way. The seventh part of spiritual maturity is being the right thing. And I think Sharon and Susan do a pretty good job of showing you the extremes. Sharon and Susan aren't individuals, but I can think of dozens of students who are my Sharons and Susans. We tend to gravitate toward one extreme, but we probably aren't exactly like either. Being the right thing has everything to do with character, and it pulls together the other six parts of spiritual maturity. My argument here is when you are the right things, you tend to learn the right things, do the right things, think about the right things, have the right relationships, aim for the right things, and have the right attitudes. You still mess up each of these, but you're trying. Character is one of those old-fashioned words which has given us thousands of great quotes. Martin Luther King said, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Ogmandino says, sound character provides the power with which a person may ride the emergencies of life instead of being overwhelmed by them. Calvin Coolidge said, industry, thrift, and self-control are not sought because they create wealth, but because they create character. You probably have your own favorite quote about character. And by the way, I agree with all of these and many more. But there's a real danger in collecting these pithy sayings or bumper sticker slogans to represent something which represents who we are. Look, we all do have a character. We can confuse character with things like reputation or habits, and certainly character is related to both of those ideas. The character we have 
is often shaped by the habits we've gotten used to, and those habits tend to give us a certain reputation among some people. But it's not exactly the same thing. Look, Jesus had a bad reputation among many of the Jewish leaders, but did he have a bad character? You already know the answer to that. Sometimes we use character to mean someone we like. I use it like that a lot. If I say someone has character, it really means she has a good character. It's not exactly she has a good reputation, but she probably does. But there's a core to her which I think is good. However, when we talk about character, we really mean two different but inseparable ideas. It's both the identity we say we are and the thing we're trying to be. For example, when do you go from someone who likes to bake to being a baker? Or someone who's pretty good at golf to being a golfer? Or someone who is trying to be a good Christian to being a good Christian? Yeah, it seems like an academic or short step from trying to be something to being something. But it's a pretty important step. When you choose what you are, your values become clear. Being a good Christian means you've chosen Christian values. Christianity is your identity, but you don't always do that well. So it's also what you're trying to do. You're a Christian who's trying to live the Christian values as best you can. Let me say the same thing just a little bit differently. Have you ever noticed how God uses family terms to explain our relationships? He's our father, we're his sons and daughters, we're brothers and sisters to one another. Why does he identify himself as a father? Well, by saying that, it means he's someone who has an incredible love and interest in us. He's like your dad. We matter to him because we're family. The character of God is the same as a loving father. I don't think it's a mistake God uses the family relationship to reflect our spiritual relationship. I really think our families were given to us to explain our relationship to God. In Luke 20, the old sect of the Jews called the Sadducees gave Jesus a logical puzzle and talked about a woman who had married seven brothers one after another. One would die, so the next would marry her, etc. Then they asked, whose wife would she be when they were resurrected? Jesus tells them, in heaven, you don't get married. In other words, the whole idea of family doesn't mean anything in the afterlife. God made us families so we could better understand our relationship with him. Okay, that might be interesting, but what does that have to do with being the right thing? Didn't Jesus say you can call him Lord all day long, but if you're just not doing the right thing, you're fooling yourself? Well, yeah, he did in Luke 6. So how does giving yourself a name change who you are? How does calling yourself a good Christian mean you are a good Christian? Doesn't it just mean you're doing the right thing? Well, not exactly. It's precisely the same way I'm a husband. It means my decisions affect both my wife and me. It means I shouldn't think like a single guy. Does that mean I don't sometimes think like a single guy? No. I mess that up a lot. I do stupid stuff. But I've chosen to be a husband in a relationship with my wife. And that means when I make stupid choices which don't line up with being a good one, the marriage didn't stop. My role as a husband isn't limited to just me. As long as my wife is still in it and says she's wanting to keep trying, that means I'm still in it too. I'm still a husband. Our relationship is still working because we're still working at the relationship. 
it doesn't mean I should get away with it. It means I need to go back acting like a husband because that's what I am. Being the right things doesn't mean you're always right. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It doesn't mean you're flawless. Christians don't do the right things a lot. We don't do the right things. We don't think the right things. We don't have the right relationships. We don't have the right attitudes. And when sometimes we don't even aim for the right things, it means that when those things go off course, because we chose to be a Christian and because God isn't done with us, we try to fix it. My relationship doesn't end because I did something stupid. My relationship is done when I call it quits or God calls it quits. Yes, but doesn't sin break our relationship with God? Yeah, it did. But God took the punishment for your mistake and says, try again. Do better. You know you can have some really big fights with your family, don't you? You can have a shouting match over Thanksgiving dinner or a really big misunderstanding. But you're still family. As long as you're willing to call yourself a husband or wife, son or daughter, and your family is still willing to claim you, you're still in. The only way to get out of your relationship with God is to throw in the towel, to quit, to stop being a son or daughter and say you're done. Because God is never done with you. In Hebrews 13, God tells us as long as we're ready to be in a relationship with him, he'll help you be the right thing. Okay, but I know my character isn't what it should be. I know I have room to grow in being a better Christian. Good. Many simply get comfortable with being in the same place. It takes some real spiritual maturity to see you could get better. Gordon MacDonald is the author of Ordering Your Private World. It's a great book. I really highly recommend it. In it, he asked this question. Are we going to order our inner worlds, our hearts, so that we will radiate influence into the outer world? Or will we neglect our private worlds and thus permit the outer influences to shape us? In other words, if you want to be better, go learn more. Go do more. Go think more. Build more good relationships. Set more good goals. Get a better attitude. And when you do, you'll get better. You'll be better. Our reasons to be the right thing or be in a relationship with God often change over time. We don't often stay in relationships for the same reasons that we first got into them. The reasons we decided to marry someone is often different than our reasons for staying married to someone. Our motivations begin to change. For example, when I was a kid, my dad told me to go mow the lawn. If I didn't mow the lawn, I'd get punished. So, I mean, I mowed the lawn because I didn't want to get the punishment. As I got a little older, my dad started figuring out he could probably give me money. I might be more eager about mowing the lawn. So he paid me $5. If you go mow the lawn, I'll give you five bucks. As I get older, sometimes I'll go back to the house where my parents live, and sometimes I'll mow the lawn. I'm not worried about being punished by my dad, and I'm not really looking for $5, but I do love my dad, and that's why I'm mowing the lawn now. Often our relationship with God may start because we fear punishment. We don't want to go to hell. After a while, we may look for the reward more. It's not that we don't want to go to hell. It's we want to go to heaven. And by the way, those are perfectly good and reasonable motivations. Punishment is real. 
heaven is real, but God's love is also real. Hopefully there comes a point where we are the right thing because we love God that much. He's changed our values. He's helped us shape our character. And ultimately, he's changed everything that matters. That's a pretty good reason to be the right thing. My Sharons may be too hard on themselves. They may not recognize they're already a good student. And my Susans may be too easy on themselves. They may be a little too generous in what kind of student they are. But as long as my Sharons and Susans keep trying, they'll keep learning and they'll keep growing. Thanks for joining me. If you'd like to help support the podcast, give us a good review where you download podcasts and tell others about it. Until next time, be good and do good. Thank you.